Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Thursday, uh, November 23rd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the release of videos by opposition forces in Palestine, which challenge the corporate media narratives. The White House says there is no genocide taking place in Gaza. We'll have details on that as well. There are alternative assessments of the political military situation in Gaza and the West Bank. And in Gaza, there are continuing massacres on a daily basis. In the second hour, we look at the day of mourning with a focus on African-Indian alliances in the southeast region of the today's United States in a war against burgeoning imperialism during the early and mid-19th centuries. Finally, we look back on the 60th anniversary of the assassination of the 35th president of the United States, uh, John F. Kennedy, and the questions raised uh, about the official explanation for his murder. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, and continue with our Um Kaltum and her orchestra's film festival. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
بيت مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك قولك على طول الليل ونظاري فكري بيك مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك على طول الليل ونظاري فكري بيك مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك على الطول ولسه بتصدق حسود وعزود ولسه بتصدق حسود
الهجر اهون من عذاب الغربه ولا شفش يوما دمع لي وانا جنبك الهجر اهون من
in this gradually escalating regional conflict have been busy. The Qassam, the Salah al-Quds uh, brigades in Gaza, uh, released regular battlefield videos despite the frequent communication shutdowns in Gaza and constant Israeli bombardment. The other fronts in this war are active as well. In Yemen, Ansarallah, uh, released uh, through their media, um, video footage of the seizure of what the, was said was an Israeli-owned ship in the Red Sea. Uh, when the spokesperson for the U.S. State Department reportedly asked Ansarallah, uh, also known as the Houthis, to uh, release the ship, a senior, gup, senior official in the Ansarallah media wing responded on social media, no, the ship is reportedly being held in a Yemen harbor, according uh, to satellite imagery obtained by the New York Times. And in other news, uh, Palestinians uh, displaced uh, from the Shuyega, uh east of Gaza City and from northern Gaza have sought shelter in tents around government schools in the central Yunis southern Gaza Strip. During a White House press briefing uh, on Monday, White House spokesman John Kirby went on the defensive when asked about activists dubbing the president genocide Joe for his support of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Kirby said this word genocide is going is getting thrown around in a pretty inappropriate way by lots of different folks and accused Hamas of being the party seeking genocide. Israel is not trying to wipe out the Palestinian people off the map. Kirby insisted Israel is not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Kirby was willfully denying the genocide that Israel is plainly carrying out in Gaza, an intent demonstrated in statements made by Israeli officials, uh, public figures, and members of the military, as well as the Israeli operation in the territory. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in other news, according to a report uh, by Susan Abuhawa in the Electronic Intifada, the people of Gaza are displaying great dignity despite the extreme brutality to which they are being subjected. No matter the outcome of Israel's genocidal invasion of Gaza, the Palestinian resistance fighters have already won, according to Abuhawa. Uh, they were victorious from that first day when they executed a successful military raid of Israeli targets. It was a devastating blow to Israel's very presence in the world, which depends heavily on military press and ability to strike terror in the indigenous Palestinian population and surrounding Arab neighbors. Hamas specifically targeted the heavily fortified colonies Israel has been installing and explaining for decades all around Palestinian centers of life. Like all Zionist colonies, those surrounding Gaza were built on the ancestral villages of Palestinians who remain refugees to this day. And finally, uh, in uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment, dozens of people from the same family have been killed in the Jabalia refugee camp, the Palestinian foreign minister has said, as Israel continued to bombard the besieged Gaza Strip in the hours after an agreement was reached for a truce that was expected to go into effect on Thursday. Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki uh, said on a visit to London on Wednesday that 52 members of one family were killed in the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. 
Only this morning from the Cordora family in Jabalia, 52 people have been wiped out, completely killed, he said. I have the list of the names, 52 of them, that were wiped out completely from grandfather to grandchildren. And with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, November 23rd, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Thank you. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, from their second album, Max's Bowl is Love, with the track entitled One Rainy Wish. And today is a day of mourning inside the United States, uh, often uh, distorted uh, in regard to the legacy of purported cooperation between uh, settlers and the indigenous Native American people of North America. This is an uh, audio uh, interview uh, with a historian who discusses uh, the alliance uh, between Africans and indigenous people in the southeast region of what became known as the United States during the early and mid-19th century uh, in the personage of the Black Seminoles. Let's listen uh, to uh, this interview. This evening on The Rock Newman Show, the Black Seminoles of Florida participated in one of the most successful slave revolts in U.S. history. Historian Dr. Anthony Dixon has studied this group of Native Americans and blacks and joins us to share their struggles and determination and how they resisted the efforts of the U.S. military to keep them enslaved. Coming up right now on The Rock Newman Show. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show from the campus of historic Howard University. I'm Rock Newman, and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. In the early 1950s, Hollywood films not only depicted Native Americans as savages, but the roles were often played by white actors. Let's take a look. I bring him a most important message. I do not trust you. Silence your tongue, young one. He has been in council with his chiefs. Come, we will find him. My guest is an African-American history professor with expert knowledge about the efforts to enslave the entire black Seminole population in Florida and the Second Seminole War. Joining me now is author and historian Dr. Anthony Dixon. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show. Good afternoon, brother. Thank you for having me. Let me say from the outset that um, your book here called uh, Florida's Florida's Negro War is one I really wish we had several hours to examine this evening. The Seminole Wars are um, little-known history facts, much mischaracterized when it has been talked about, and I want to get into I want to get into all of that. Before I do, though, I want to get a little uh, introduce my audience to to you, Doctor okay. Doctor Anthony Dixon. Um, we were talking last night, and you said something that you would have no idea how much it resonated with me because you mentioned one of my favorite characters in all of American history, and that is Jackie Robinson. Okay. And then you mentioned another one named Mary McLeod Bethune. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind. As we start this here, if you would share 
what it, how their paths crossed in the great state of Florida. Okay. Um, well, of course, Mary, Mary McLeod came into Florida in the early 1900s, and she established a, good, a school for African-American girls, uh, and it went on to become what we call now Bethune-Cookman University. The relationship between the two was such. Um, of course, Jackie Robinson played for uh, played baseball for the Dodgers. Their spring training was in Daytona. Mm -hmm. However, um, Jackie could not stay in in Daytona. There was there wasn't a rooming house. There wasn't a hotel that would accept him. Uh, so he would spend. Initially, he started spending uh, his time in a nearby city called Sanford. Uh, if you recall, this is where Trayvon Martin yes. was murdered. Right. Um, and he would have to ride over from Sanford into Daytona for practice. Mm -hmm. uh, but through, in time rather, um, he developed a relationship with Mary McLeod. And so uh, he began to spend more, more time on campus at Bethune-Cookman, and he was welcomed there. So he didn't have to drive all the way back to Sanford mm -hmm. uh, every day, especially after a, a long day of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, he was allowed to um, come over to Bethune-Cookman, mm -hmm. and he began to spend a lot more time with Mary McLeod. Uh, by this time, she was uh, toward the end of her career yeah. and, and life, yeah. um, for that matter. Uh, but they still developed a very good relationship, and we still have, and we do have, rather, archival material to attest to that relationship. Yeah, and where he would come visit her at the house yes. is a home that she worked from and created a small uh, museum of sorts initially in a room? No, what she did was she created a foundation. Uh -huh. She created a foundation on her in, at her home. She added a uh, room to it as an office. Yeah. And through that, she began to continue her work for the African-American community. Uh, and when I say African-American community, I mean as a whole uh, with the National Council of Negro Women, yeah. um, her work with the Black Cabinet, yeah. um, subsequent work years later mm -hmm. uh, through those relationships. All of those things, she culminated into a foundation. Right. And so uh, the, how, the home itself, um, has now become a museum. Uh -huh. So the foundation is still there. Um, NCNW still comes on campus. Yeah. Um, we still do uh, some of, carry on some of her work, some of the community work that she she started. Uh, but we also now interpret her life through through the house and through the museum. And so now her her house is a museum itself. And who's the executive director? Uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have the executive director of the Mary McLeod Bethune House and Museum. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that as well as the uh, archives that is located right next door in the bill, in mm -hmm. the uh, library. Right. And right. so we have the university archives that has the complete Mary McLeod Bethune collection, mm -hmm. uh, which includes her work here yeah. in D.C. Have you been to, by any chance, the uh, National Council of Negro Women building here, offices here in Washington, D.C.? No, I have Man, not. Man, uh, it, 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 it was the first owned property by African Americans uh, right downtown here on Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh, no, yeah, that I did yeah. not one, know. One of, one of our giants, Dorothy Height, 
yeah. uh, headed up the uh, National Council of Negro Women for many years, and obviously was, uh, you know, worshipped uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and and carried on in a great tradition. And uh, she put it all together, man. She and her team to to get that building down there. Yes, she did a great job, man. She was also um, very close to Mary as well. Yeah. Um, she was a regular guest on campus as well. Uh -huh. um, as a few other activists and and uh, other people, uh, known people, uh, African Americans um, that we give notoriety to. Yeah. And I'll be honest, not all relationships were glitz and glamour sure. and gold. Sure. You know, um, sure. relationship come to mind quickly. Um, Zora Neale, uh -huh. Zora Neale Hurston, yes. actually taught at Bethune Cookman. Mm -hmm. um, for a short stint, mm -hmm. um, but we find that that relationship, you know, two bright stars don't always yeah. <laughs> shine together. Yeah. So um, her stint at Bethune-Cookman was short, mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, um, it was impactful. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, you, uh, you wrote this book, uh, Florida's Negro War, uh, Black Seminoles and the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842. Give us a little bit about your background, and please tell us how you became interested in uh, publishing uh, this book. First, um, I, uh, even in undergrad, uh, history was my major. Uh, Afro-Am studies was my minor, mm -hmm. um, and I worked. I had the, the honor of working under Dr. Larry Rivers, uh, who actually wrote the uh, anthology piece on slavery in Florida. And so when I returned to uh, Florida A&M uh, from my undergrad, after receiving it, I returned for my master's, I became his graduate assistant. Mm -hmm. And in that, he was always sending me uh, to the library, sending me to the state archives, different places. And so for me, I became interested in my area um, was slavery and reconstruction. Just, just to clear, uh, Dr. Larry Rivers was president of Fort Valley State? Yes. Uh -huh. The same okay. Dr. Larry, he left mm -hmm. from Florida A&M uh -huh. and went on to become president of Fort Valley State. Right. Um, now, in that, um, my studies for and uh, looking at um, slavery and reconstruction, um, I started then kind of narrowing the focus, and I started looking at resistance and resistance to slavery and oppression. Mm -hmm. And so in doing so, I came across this this very unique, outstanding story of African Americans who actually resisted uh, slavery. They, re they resisted their re-enslavement. They resisted the enslavement of their, um, of their offspring, of their children and their descendants. And they ended up going into a war partnering with the Seminole Native Americans and going into a war uh, that we now consider the longest and deadliest Native American war fought on U.S. soil. But we are also now looking at it and then examining it as possibly, and what I like to call, um, the largest slave rebellion on U.S. soil. We talk about the Point Coupe. We talk about uh, Nat Turner. And, of course, we... Talk about Denmark and his the um, Denmark V's. the fail right mm -hmm. Denmark mm -hmm. and the failed attempt, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about this group of people who actually 
um, absconded, got their freedom, retained their freedom, fought the U.S. government for seven long years, and were able to keep their freedom. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we look at it in that, that vernacular and, and we start looking at the dynamics from that perspective, we have to we have to start looking at the Second Seminole War as a, a slave rebellion. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm, and furthermore, not only if we look at it as a slave rebellion, we now have to say that it is the largest yeah. on U.S. soil. Yeah. And, you know, on the clip that was played, when I first saw it, it just made my head explode because it, it titled Seminole War Cries. And it said, thunder and fury of savage vengeance. So the depiction back in the 1950s, up until that time and since that time, mm -hmm. has so often been just of that, that when, which speaks to the issue that until the lion is able to write his story, the, cap, the, 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 the one the, doing the capturing is always going to be glorified. And that was just so prominent when you see these kinds of films about this, about this war and about this time. In your book, one of the first things that caught me was you write, you write black maroon settlements in the wilderness existed by utilizing a pan-Africanist perspective in the social, political, religious, and military organization of their communities. And you say that why? Uh, given their roots themselves mm -hmm. initially, um, most of your initial Florida Maroons are actually uh, abscond runaways. I was going to ask you to describe Maroons. Okay. Yeah. Maroons are basically enslaved people who decide uh, to run away, to abscond from the plantation, and eke out the existence in the wilderness um, however uh, they can. Yeah. And so they go into the most um, what we would call treacherous portions, especially for uh, Europeans. And when I say that, I mean the uh, particularly the swampy areas because uh, the swamps and water, of course, bring the mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes would bring um, yellow fever. And Europeans and their descendants were highly susceptible to uh to yellow fever mm -hmm. so they would specifically go like the great dismal swamp on the north carolina virginia area mm -hmm. and then into florida um in the different areas in florida um for those specific reasons that they could uh eke out their own existence now where these people come from are uh, uh, primarily out of the georgia and south carolina sea islands mm -hmm. and what we call gullah mm -hmm. and which is now, uh, of course, the only national heritage area dedicated to African-American culture, and we call it the Gullah, Gullah Heritage Corridor, right. Gullah Geechee um, National Heritage Corridor. Now, these people, uh, your Gullah people, are basically people who take West African languages, because it's now a homogenized group of West Africans sure. now, and so they uh, create a language that we call Geechee, and they incorporate West African culture, West African language, and then they incorporate uh, plantation life, specifically mm. English plantation life, mm -hmm. um, and, of course, English words. 
And so they created their own culture. We call it Gullah. We call their language Geechee. Now, when these people began to run away, um, they began to head south. I know most people think the uh, Underground Railroad always went north. Right. But the first Underground Railroad actually went south mm -hmm. into, at that time, La Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Spanish held Florida, and they called it La Florida at this right. time. Right. And so... Because they are arguing, and when I say they, I mean the English and the Spanish, mm -hmm. they are fighting for control over parts of the East Coast. They are actually fighting for e English, all of English and British. The English and the Spanish. Uh, uh, they uh -huh. are fighting. Uh, but I, 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 meant to say, I meant to say the Spanish and the British. Right. The right. Spanish mm -hmm. and the British are mm -hmm. fighting for control over the East Coast, basically. Right. right. Uh, the Spanish have laid claim from as far as Miami all the way up to Newfoundland, um, Canada. Mm -hmm. And of course the English are disputing that. Yeah. And so what happens is the Spanish understand that the English survival is based on plantation society, that they have placed it on on how well they are going to do in terms of the agriculture. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Spanish are looking at the precious commodities. Mm -hmm. They find the gold and the silver of right. course out in out west. Yeah. And so they're more concerned out west than they are with the East Coast. Mm -hmm. But when the British come and start taking and engulfing the land and claiming it as their own, they have to come back and focus. Mm -hmm. And so when they focus, they realize that how the English goes is how their um, slaves go, mm -hmm. how they enslaved, mm -hmm. how many they bring in, how much work they get done. Right. And that is clearly the point of which they are going to build plantation society. Mm -hmm. So what the Spanish do to counter that is that they offer, in uh, 1693, they offer an edict that says any, any enslaved person that runs away from the English society right. can come to La Florida and mm -hmm. live for free. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens live is... Live in freedom. Live in freedom, yes. live for mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. there's, we have two different scenarios there. They say you can go two ways. You can either go into the wilderness, live in, in Florida, in the wilderness, eke mm -hmm. out your own existence. Uh, we only ask that when you see the British, if you see them in the area, get word to us. Mm -hmm. That's all that we ask. Okay. And then there was a second, second offering or second group. Um, they made an offer. Well, a second group arises out of an offer, and they basically say you can live under Spanish authority. You can. You can. Mm -hmm. You can come to St. Augustine, mm -hmm. uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and live under Spanish authority. They built a fort. Um, it's called Fort Mose. Yeah. Uh, it's now a historical site. And uh, the thing about it is, of course, because it's Spanish and you're going under the authority, they had, to, they had one, um, one main rule is that they had to become Catholic. Mm -hmm. Right? So... We see cultural differences starting, to, right, starting right. to sure to come about between the two groups of um the two groups of runaways. Mm -hmm. Now, those that are living in the wilderness though, they are eking out their own existence and they are retaining Gullah culture. Mm -hmm. And they are keeping that Gullah culture. And so we see Gullah at this point, once it gets into Florida and it goes from Florida to the Bahamas and to uh, Texas, to Oklahoma, and ultimately to Nacimiento, Mexico, there's a small group of Gullah people that actually do leave Fort Mose, and they end up in Cuba, and they have a, a uh, community there mm -hmm. as well. 
And so what we see is Gullah then turning into a diaspora once it comes into Florida. Mm -hmm. And so what then happens also is while they are creating these small villages and eking out this society, there are also Native Americans yeah. that are that are trying to escape plantation society as well mm -hmm. out of the same area. Mm -hmm. um, we see the larger numbers, of course, coming um, after the um, Yamasee War. Mm -hmm. now, um, now, if I could stop you for a second, because yes. you say, you know, the Native Americans um, are trying to escape plantation existence also. Right. And, uh, because what has happened is they who originally occupied the land mm -hmm. now was were having their was having their land taken away from them yes and all not but and then captured by those who took the land right and mm -hmm. it's it's also more than that as well i know that's the most important thing mm -hmm. that taking your land and taking parts of your freedom mm -hmm. but also it's the encroachment of the society you see the basic problem and I won't go too far on tangent there, but the basic problem between Europeans and Native Americans was property use and land rights. Mm -hmm. That was the basic problem. They had two very different concepts. Right. Native Americans did not believe that you could own the land. Right. Whereas, of course, Europeans, you own what you can get or take. Right. 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 And so under that, those basic um, ideologies, the conflict in those basic ideologies, we see everything else stemming from mm -hmm. when terms of that relationship. Right. Now, when we look at relationship <clears throat> between Native Americans and blacks or Africans at this time, mm -hmm. it has to develop mm -hmm. because uh, initially all Native Americans see are these black people on their land, clearing their land. Yeah. And so they had to come to the understanding that these black people, these Africans, were being forced mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't these Africans that were actually encroaching your land. It's actually the people who were driving the force and, and uh, were manipulating and quote-unquote owning them. Mm -hmm. And so... Let, let, me, let me stop you there, because mm -hmm. I, I, I want to give the viewers an opportunity to see how you succinctly put this. As you, we talked about the definition of Maroons. You said, these Maroon communities established close relationships with the, na with the neighboring Native Americans. These two communities lived, for the most part, in harmony and provided the foundation for what would later become the Seminole Nation. I, I want to go further. Um, these, the, the culture was created by fusing various African traditions which resulted in Pan-Africanist ethos within the community. This type of Pan-African culture existed with minimal European interference. These Pan-African cultural traits manifested themselves in a variety of cultural forms that distinguished their communities from both Spanish society and Native American communities, regardless of the close proximity. Research has shown that these cultural traits were most prevalent in, com in communication, artistic expression, and religion. Yes, um, and uh, each one communication um, with the Gullah, what they did, um, and this is where we really start seeing Gullah turn into a diaspora, because they are cohabitating, and nothing happens overnight, mm -hmm. right? They are, they are coming down through what was considered the buffer zone then, yeah. and of course it 
ends up becoming the last 13 colony becoming Georgia. Yeah. And so in that buffer zone, we start seeing a lot of Native Americans and uh, partic particularly the smaller bands of Native Americans, not the large ones, the Creeks, the Cherokee, but initially the smaller ones, the Hittites and the Uchi, the smaller bands, mm -hmm. um, and those that are smaller factions out of the Yamasee um, or Yamasee, some say, um, what's happening is they begin to uh, cohabitate a little bit, but moreover, they're beginning to, uh, to find ways to communicate better with each other. Mm -hmm. So what we see is now the Gullah, the Gullah dialect, Gullah language being starting to incorporate Native American words. Mm -hmm. And so once that happens, we see a metamorphosis, and we don't call that Gullah. We actually call that the Afro-Seminole Creole um, language. Okay. And so that is the mixture between Gullah, mm -hmm. which again is the West African and um, English words, mm -hmm. and now we have certain Native American words that are put into it, and that is what changes it, and that's what really puts us on that road to saying uh, Gullah is a diaspora. Mm -hmm. So now in that, right, back to the uh, relationship itself, uh, this cohabitation continues to grow yes. because plantation society is encroaching upon Native Americans, mm -hmm. and it's encroaching in that they're chasing away the food, mm -hmm. which means they're changing their way of life. Mm -hmm. And so they are also having to depend on these runaways as well to show them how to actually plant different crops, how to rotate different crops, in order for sustainability now right. because they can't rely on the hunting mm -hmm. that they have done for eons of years prior. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let me interject, please, because you, when you say plantation life, I want my viewers to make sure they understand what that is. That plantation life is about enslaving people to be able to grow the plantations. Right, and, but it's also turning for Native Americans is turning the land mm -hmm. into an agrarian society. Yeah. See, all those open fields where the deer ran and the bear and the bears went where they could have plenty of food, rabbits and all of that yeah. are now being chased out because you have enslaved people who are now turning over the ground, mm -hmm. turning it all into a field. Mm -hmm. And so that is also the encroachment, sure. that they are losing sure. their food supply as well. Right. Right. And so they are being forced out of the area. Mm -hmm. uh, they're being forced out of the area as well as um, plantation society grows. So they begin to cohabitate. Now, here's, I, I, gotta have, I have to tell you this, and this, this is important, and this kind of leads back to why you also get some of these negative um, <coughs> words We've always had those general savage terms for Native Americans, but uh, the ironic thing about this particular case and the ironic thing about the Seminoles is the Seminoles are homo a homogenous group of Native Americans themselves. Mm -hmm. They are actually, <clears throat> the, the majority of them are former Creeks. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is there's a large schism in the Creek Nation. The mm -hmm. Creek Nation breaks. Mm -hmm. You have your upper Creeks that live in northern part of present-day Alabama. They're up, of course, by the uh, mountains up in that area. Mm -hmm. And then you have your lower Creeks mm -hmm. that are down in that corner between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, mm -hmm. right? And so what happens is the, the ones in the south, 
they began to accept plantation society. Mm -hmm. They even began to buy and trade enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And so they began to not resist plantation, but actually mm -hmm. join and work with plantation society. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks up north were basically, what are you doing? Yeah. We don't own people. We take them as war. We hold them so we won't have to fight them again. We keep their women so we can keep our numbers up. But we don't enslave them for our own living. Yeah. You know, what yeah. are you all doing? Yeah. And so there's this schism. Mm -hmm. And so the northern, northern Creeks pushed themselves, pushed their way, rather, through Alabama. They pushed through the southern Creeks, and they come into Florida. Mm -hmm. And so when they come into Florida, they mix with the other Native Americans that are also running. You have the uh, Miccosukee. Like I said, you have the other smaller bands. You even have some Cherokee that are leaving North Georgia and the yeah. other areas of Georgia, and they're coming um, down into Florida. These are smaller bands, though, that are kind of broken away mm -hmm. because they needed to figure out how they were going to survive as well. Right. And so they become this homogenous group that we call the Seminoles. Uh, and it actually, when you look at the word and you trace it back, Semolina, Cimarron, um, it has different meanings, but the main one is um, Breakaway Creek or Renegade Creek. Mm -hmm. That's why everything you see with Florida State University and they yeah. say the um, Seminoles, they, every, the first thing you see up on it is Renegade mm -hmm. because that is one of the original terms for Semolina. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a negative term that the Spanish gave, Cimarron, uh, which basically meant wild beast, wild, mm -hmm. wild dog. And, and, of course, you can understand that it's just like anything else. When you're on the opposite side of the team, you know, with yeah. you the opponent, yeah. it's not going to be a positive word. On right. the other side, right. um, even when we use the word griot, mm -hmm. uh, most people don't know for Europeans, they thought the word griot was a very negative word. It was a negative term. Mm -hmm. But we embrace that term. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same, same thing here. When we look at the words like um, savage and all of that good stuff, it's that opposite side of the fence type right. of thing. When part of just as you're describing here and we haven't gotten we haven't gotten you know into the book yet where you really start to talk about what is the 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 violence the the continual grabbing of the land the 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 the, sla the slaughter of the people mm -hmm. and to deal with the book you know we will get there but you know just early on, I made a big note when, 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 when you talked about Angola being the first noted town there of the Native American settlements, Angola. And then you go, then on the same page is 18, in 1821, Angola was destroyed and the town burned. And we've, in terms of the U.S. military, Mm -hmm. And again, it's occupation. Just throughout history, when either Native Americans have been involved or African Americans have been involved, there is the burning of a town, man. There's the, there's the slaughter of a people. And so on, what is this, on page 11, mm -hmm. I just felt, you know, without dramatizing it, you exposed the terror. When one mm -hmm. thinks for a second that here are people who live every waking hour, who one have been imported 
as slaves. Others who were the original inhabitants of the land. Mm -hmm. And every waking hour, they must be mindful of the tyranny that is coming at them with fire and fury that they have no experience with for a very long time. I'm sorry. Let me jump in there first, the point of clarification. Angola was actually a black Seminole village. It sat mm -hmm. next to it. Mm -hmm. um, Native Americans lived outside of Angola. Uh, and you are right. You see that time and time again, um, even in, in this period with my, with my book and dealing with the black Seminoles, there are actually two other instances where um, villages are being burned that they can just completely burn it down. And so we see um, that as a regular tactic, yeah. you know, that that is a regular tactic that was used all the way up through the 19, we can, we can trace that all the way through, all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and other places, that this is when communities, uh, when African-American communities are out of the graces, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. of the larger white community, yeah. Yeah. They simply get rid of it, yeah. and they do it by normally by just destroying the whole thing. And and we all know fire is is a pretty good tool, and it's pretty quick and easy. Yeah. So you know, I don't want to jump around too much, but I but I want to okay. do this because as I was reading it, I wrote a I wrote in big letters the the the, the legitimacy of the conversation of reparations. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other show. But when you just go back and look at the basics here of what people had and the, the slaughter that took place and the, 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 the stealing by force of land, by murder and slaughter and genocide, that issue of 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 of, of reparations, reparations, just I I couldn't get past what am I on page eighteen? It's like, man, does this ever make a case without trying to do it for reparations? And I'll say this briefly so we can we can stay on topic yeah. about reparations. We have different instances. This this is clearly a case. Um, we have another case I'll mention in just a second. The issue is. There's always been uh, opposition, right? And it, that opposition to it comes in this idea of quantifiable measurement, right? How can we quantify things if we really want to say reparations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been the biggest tool against reparations, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing about it is we actually can. Mm -hmm. There are instances where we can quantify. Um, one in particular I always use, think about... All of those years, African Americans went.